American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Um, so Introduction. I'm honored to be asked to uh, interrogate uh, the eminent Dr. Freeman. Um, the one thing you didn't say is that my first beat at the New York Times was covering manufacturing. So, and I covered the steel industry. And when I left the Times 31 years later, I was writing a lot about sweatshops. And Josh writes a lot about uh, steel and sweatshops and a lot in between. This is really a wonderful book. And I, I recommend it very highly. It's not just about factories, but it's about the history of manufacturing in the world. And it goes from the very beginning of manufacturing in old England and to the beginning of manufacturing in the United States. Uh, talks about Dickensian conditions and what inspired Marx to become Marx. And uh, talks about uh, Henry Ford and Fordism and uh, Flint sit-down strike and fast forwards to uh, Foxconn City uh, where there are 300,000 workers, many of whom are making iPads and iPhones. And, and, and Josh is a wonderful writer. It's a really, really excellent read. And uh, we don't expect academics to write so well, but some, some, sometimes they do. So um, I always thought that you know, manufacturing began in the late 1700s. And, and in the very first paragraph of your book, you write about a factory in 1721 in Derby, England. Yeah. Uh, very first factory in the world. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us a little about yeah. this factory and what the arrival of manufacturing meant for humankind? Yeah, I'm going to do the political thing, and, and not answer your question for one second. I just want to thank Don and Ork and my uh, program here, the PhD program in history, for, for all their support in sponsoring this, and my publisher, Norton, who is wonderful, and my editor, Matt Wyland, and Will Scarlett, so uh, I, I, I cheated. But now I'm going to answer your question. Okay, um, uh, yes, in, in Derby, England, uh, it, there still stands, actually, the foundation of a, of a factory that started in 1721. And it, it, it's an extraordinary thing in a way because uh, if you look at a lithograph, or I have one in the book, of it, you look at it and you go, oh, it's a factory. And yet it was in many ways completely pioneering. It made silk thread. And there was a kind of increasing uh, vogue for silk, luxury good in England. And the thread, you know, the silkworm and that's in the cocoon, and eventually you have to get into thread that you can weave. Um, this uh, process of making the thread was done by hand, extremely slow, and so this factory was built to use machinery to, to do it, and they got the machine designs by stealing them from the northern Italians. Uh, Bologna was the advanced center of silk manufacturing. They sent uh, a man named John Loam, sent his brother uh, to go there to, to, to sort of sneak around. It was illegal to export the machinery, so he sort of memorized it, uh, hired away a few Italian workers, and they went back to Derby, and they built this factory that had 300 people, which was a vast enterprise by the standards of the day, mostly children, water-powered, you know, uh, integrated production, uh, and it had all the components, you know, uh, that we think of as a factory, you know. And instantly, people think, like, Wow, something new is happening here. You know, so so like like Daniel Defoe goes there, and you know he writes this kind of gee whiz description of it. And later, 
uh, Boswell goes there. You know, people right away recognize kind of something new is happening here. And, and it becomes very, very important, not because of the silk industry, which kind of turns out to be a dead end in England, but because it becomes the template for the cotton industry. And the first large cotton factories are right in the same area. They're directly copied from this kind of template that this guy Thomas Lone uh, developed in 1721. And you write about, uh, it's over the next century, a lot of textile factories are springing up uh, in, in England and Scotland. And you mentioned that a lot of them employ seven-year-olds. Some factory managers prefer 10-year-olds yeah, and 12-year-olds. Yeah. And, yeah. and that in some factories, the only adults are the overseers. Yeah. You know, what's up with that? Right, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a good question. You know, uh, First of all, you, know, you have to recognize that the problem of assembling a workforce of this size is like a new problem. I mean, you did have armies and sort of coerced labor and unusual circumstances, but on an ongoing basis, uh, no one before had 200 or, you know, by the 1790s, they have 1,000 people in a factory. So where are you going to get the people from? Uh, and, and factory owners like kids because they're extraordinarily cheap, you know, they're extraordinarily uh, intimidatable, and in many cases, they're coerced to be there, uh, sometimes by their parents who are desperate for their income. Sometimes they're what's called parish apprentices. And these are kids who are in kind of in orphanages who, uh, where the local authorities that run these orphanages sign contracts with these textile mills that commit these kids to, to work in them. And, and you know, it's criminal activity for the kids who run away. They can be arrested um, for doing so. So it, you know, it's, it's a very pliable workforce, very cheap. It's justified, oh, you know, they have small fingers, they're nimble, and so forth. Uh, it's supplemented by um, young women, mostly. Again, they're kind of uh, available. And what the factories don't want is craft workers. They don't want skilled workers who have a sense of their own uh, uh, knowledge and, and, and autonomy. You know, they, they want someone who has no knowledge that they can simply control. So this is a good lead-in to discuss the Luddites yeah, yeah. for a second. And you know, they felt their jobs were being taken away by these kids and others. Yeah. And, and can you talk a little about that movement? Well, sure. Um, you know, uh, it's, it, it's funny because uh, it, you know, it's one of the inheritances we have of that moment. And that term is often used you know, sometimes by people who have no idea where it comes from. You know, uh, like in the tech world, you hear it all the time, you know, anyone who's against you know, Instagram is a Luddite, you know. Um, but uh, it, it, as you suggest, you know, it, it came from workers, primarily not factory workers themselves, but workers who were threatened by the introduction of, you know, new systems of mechanical production, which will undercut not only their livelihood, but their kind of status as, as, as you know, self-respecting workers. And, you know, there are very few avenues for um, protest. You know, this is prior to the suffrage. So, Working class men don't have the right to vote. There are extraordinarily draconian laws about assembly and political organization. You know, this is kind of in the aftermath of the French Revolution when the English are very worried. You know, this is going to spread across the channel. So um, machine wrecking becomes a kind of mode of uh, protest. And, 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 and um, there are waves of this uh, in, around 1811, 1812, and then again a few years later. Um, and it is met with severe repression. You know, the army's mobilized, people are arrested, some were uh, deported to Australia, some were hung uh, because it's seen as a, a threat to this whole new emerging system. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a brief episode, but it, 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 it kind of 
echoes down to us even now. I thought the book had a terrific section about factory conditions in England in the first half of the 19th mm -hmm. century. And, and the child workers, the 12-hour days, the you know, bullying bosses, the horrible air to breathe, the lack of light. Mm. And then you see, well, this is where Dickens comes from, and this is where you know, Marx is writing right in this period. And you get an idea, well, uh, manufacturing is really horrible then, yeah. and, the you know, and the conditions for the proletariat were really horrible then. Can you talk about how this might have inspired Marx's very dark vision of capitalism? Well, you know, Marx was already a, uh, a revolutionary of sorts, you know, a critic of the emerging, you know, the capitalism, by the way, it was not a word that kind of existed then, but of, of the political economy. Uh, and of course, after 1848, he was exiled first around Europe, and he ends up in England, where he reunites with Frederick Engels, who he had briefly met earlier, and begins to, to, to write. And partially through Engels, and partially through his own investigation, you know, he becomes very, uh, uh, engage with looking at what's going on in these factories. And, you know, although I think Marxism is often inherited by us as a very abstract system, you know, he's extraordinarily concrete. And, he, and, and Engels, who I think as everyone knows, you know, his family was part owner of a Manchester uh, cotton mill, and he spent a lot of his adult life working there, hating it, you know, and, but feeding Marx detailed information. So when you read Marx's description of capitalism, uh, he uses the example of the cotton mill, and it's not some abstraction. He has, you know, of course, this much to buy this thing and that much to buy that. So, and they, again, you know, they're, they're not looking just at, at sort of vast transformations. They are acutely interested in the day-to-day -day struggles. And for Marx, above all, it's the length of the day, you know, which is the exploitative moment, you know, and the use of child labor. And so, uh, you know, it, it becomes the central imagery of, of, of capitalism in capital, you know, and, and I think, again, a lot of that is owed to, Mar to Engels, including, by the way, uh, Marx's ability to write the book because Engels subsidized him off of the salary he got managing this cotton mill while he was writing capital, so it's kind of ironic. It goes the full circle. Let's skip across the ocean to the United States. Yeah. So it's really eye-opening to me to read about really the you know, early history of manufacturing in, uh, in uh, the United States. I was having dinner with someone from Portucket, Rhode Island. He's, I said one of the very first factories was in Portucket. Yeah. And uh, just as England stole technologies from Italy, Americans stole technologies from England. Yeah. Uh, but you, know, you write at length about uh, first the factories in Waltham, and then they needed more water yeah. power, and then they moved to Lowell as an ideal site. And you know, you describe Lowell as a, in way, a model is a strong word, but you know, they tried to make it into a benevolent manufacturing community, attracting uh, the daughters of yeoman farmers, and the women were happy to leave the farms and discover outside life. And you know, they built, you know fashionable factories and, and, and uh, rooming houses. Um, and it was a much better image of, manu of early manufacturing than I thought. You know, can you talk about yeah. what the, what was it called, the Boston Capital Company? I forget. Yeah, yeah, Boston Manufacturing. Right. And then, well, you know, the, at first, Americans sort of crudely copied the English. But then, you know, uh, shortly after the War of 1812, you know, uh, Francis Lowell, uh, who, Robert Lowell, I'm sorry, who was, who was in, uh, uh, England during, uh, came back to the United States and, and uh, decided to set up 
integrated manufacturing using and improving English technology. So they kind of steal some of the technology and they, they improve it. Uh, but they were acutely aware that, you know, in, in the American political lexicon, you know, manufacturing is seen as sort of threatening to the, the existing order. You know, I mean, Alexander Hamilton, uh, you know, was a big proponent of manufacturing, but he has a lot of critics who feel that what distinguishes us from the old world is precisely the kind of independence and autonomy that would be undermined by the factory system. And by then, things like child labor and, and, and pollution, people think, oh, that's manufacturing. So they want to avoid that for kind of political reasons, and they also have a great challenge in assembling a labor force. You know, they have to build these mills where the water power is available, and there aren't that many people living there. There aren't enough children, you know, so, and you know, where do you get workers from? And, and, and the United States has a labor shortage. It, it, it hasn't had the uh, kind of eviction of peasantry that England had had. So they kind of brilliantly think of the idea of getting young women coming of age in, in the New England hinterland, you know, uh, to come as a kind of interlude before they then eventually settle down, they get married, they start their lives. But to, to get those young women, they have to assure the women, and probably more importantly, their parents, that this is a respectable, you know, safe thing to do. So they set up a whole system. You know, one contemporary uh, newspaper, which I found, calls it a, a system of moral police. You know, they have boarding houses with rules that the women have to live in. They ha a, a part of the terms of employment is they have to go to church. Uh, and they set out to make it attractive. They, you know, th th these women don't have to, they're not destitute. It's not like in England. So they have to make it you know, kind of attractive. And so for a while, people like Dickens come from England to the United States, or de Tocqueville comes, they all go to Lowell. It's like you go to Niagara Falls and you go to Lowell, Massachusetts. And, you know, and they all go, this is amazing. It's like so much better than, than, than England. You know? And for a while, although it was probably a little oversold, you know, there was a lot of truth to it. Uh, it changes, but, but at least in the beginning, there's some truth to that. One, one thing that struck me was, you know, it, when you wrote about the factories in England, they're yeah. coal-powered and the yeah. air is filthy, yeah. and in Lowell, it's water-powered and the yeah. air is much better. Not to say yeah. there isn't cotton dust, but yeah. it, and that, yeah. that, that, was, that was a big difference. You wrote that using young country women as short-term workers in Lowell and other New England textile factories avoided the creation of a debased proletariat. Right. I right. thought that was a fascinating thought. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great fear. You know, people are kind of self-aware about this, that they, 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 they see England kind of riven by class divisions. And again, you know, this is pretty early in the history of the Republic, and there's a notion this is going to be a different kind of society. They're not levelers, but they believe that, you know, at least there should be no great social distinction, no huge economic distinction. And, and, and you know, they, and, and they're a republic. You know, they're still thinking in terms of classical, you know, uh, notions of the republic would be undermined by a, a, a proletariat, which is both dangerous and corrupt because it would be uh, manipulable. So um, this system, you know, uh, meets a lot of kind of cultural and political needs at this sort of early moment of, of American manufacturing. And there's a subtext in the book that we have this thriving textile industry in England, not thriving for a lot of workers, and thriving in, in New England. Yeah. But, you know, who is providing the raw material? Right. Well, thank you for bringing that up, you know, because this is completely embedded in slavery. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways, it's, it's, it, it, it's the reason why American slavery 
explosively expands. You know, I mean, at the time of the American Revolution, lots of people thought slavery was going to die out in the United States because it seemed less profitable and, and ideologically problematic. It's the growth of the English textile industry that creates this huge demand for cotton that leads to the spread of slavery into places, you know, the Mississippi Valley, basically. Uh, and that's where the bulk of English cotton is coming from. So, you know, these things rise together. And in fact, in the case of Lowell, not only are they uh, using slave-grown cotton, but they, the, the English products are, most, are, are finer quality than the American products. A lot of American products are fairly crude cloth, and it, uh, some of it's sold back to the South for slave clothing. So this is, is inseparably bound, you know, to uh, and, and one of the points I tried to make is that, you know, sometimes ideologically we think of manufacturing as part of a kind of capitalist revolution that, that's associated with freedom, you know, but, and, and maybe that's true, but it, it, it's bound, at least in its origin, to, you know, unfreedom, you know, they, they, they rise together. So when I was reading uh, your chapter about Lowell, as I said, I thought, you know, my sense was factory yeah. conditions in New England were oh. pretty bad. We all know about the Lawrence 1912, yeah. I have a tie about the Lawrence 1912 bread and roses strike, uh, where all these child... <laughs> You know, children of strikers came down to New York to be fed and, and housed because yeah. their parents couldn't afford, afford to keep yeah. them. And so things, something went south, something went wrong yeah. from the yeah. pretty good model conditions in Lowell to Lawrence in 1912 where we had this horrible strike. What happened? Yeah. Well, you know, in the early days, the, the, these uh, Lowell mills, which are owned by a kind of... Uh, consortium of, of, of wealthy Bostoners, and they own mills all over New England, have very little competition. You know, they're very technically advanced, and they have a lot of capital, so that they got a huge jump start. But by the 1830s, 1840s, you know, lots of other people are now beginning to build, build these mills, and some of it has to do with the expiration of patents, so it's easier to, to, to copy the machinery. Uh, so there's now competition. You know, there really wasn't that much competition in the beginning. And competition means there's pressure on, on, on costs, and basically, there are only two costs of any substance in these places, which is raw cotton, which the mill owners can't control that price, and labor. So they begin to push down uh, salaries. They begin to, you know, uh, it used to be that you tended two weaving machines. Now you tend four. Now you tend six. So it's kind of speed up. And uh, by the mid-1830s, there are actually two short little strikes by these New England women uh, because it's getting worse. And then they just begin to walk away. They don't really need these jobs. They become school teachers. They go back home. And luckily for the mill owners, you know, along comes the Irish famine, which bails them out, you know, because you get this flood of uh, Irish immigrants coming, you know, in the, in the, in the mid 18, in late 1840s. And very rapidly, within a decade, you know, that replaces the New England workforce. And, you know, the whole... Uh, context is now different. They don't have to lure these people from their farms. These are people fleeing starvation, very few alternatives. So they begin to, you know, cut, 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 cut. And that process continues, you know, really for, for, for the next half century. So slowly but surely, you know, conditions in the mills and also in the mill towns, uh, begin, they, they abandon the boarding house system. And it, 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 so by, by, you know, the period right before World War One, they've gone from, you know, a, a kind of... Uh, commercial utopia to kind of yet another, you know, dark satanic mill story. So meanwhile, in another part of the United States, yeah. uh, the Middle West, around Pittsburgh, the steel industry was, was developing. 
And you know, again, you have a very nice section about steel, and steel is kind of yeah. a symbol of a nation's yeah. industrial might. And you know, can you talk about what, you know, why the steel industry was so important and why it located in the Pittsburgh right. area? Right. Well, steel you know, succeeds uh, cotton as the, the forefront, the pioneer you know, manufacturing industry. And it's different because it's mostly making you know, what we call capital goods, things that are used by other industries as opposed to you know, direct consumer products. And the literal building of America depends on it. You know, so in the beginning, the key here is the railroad system. You know, the railroad system needs rails, and, and that's what the U.S. iron and steel industry grows up on. Um, but also, eventually, you know, girders, machinery, armaments, American naval power, you know, even as early as the Civil War, right? You know, the great uh, battle of the Monitor and the Merrimack, you know, it's, it, it's armor. So um, it, it, it's economically important. Uh, it's kind of symbolically important. You know, um, it's kind of the great age of iron. You think of you know, the Eiffel Tower, which is made of you know, iron bolted together as the great symbol of this new age. Uh, and you know, I think many countries, including the United States, come to believe that you can't have kind of full sovereignty and autonomy as a nation unless you have an iron and steel industry. You know? and, and it becomes the biggest. Uh, the most capitalized industry in the United States, um, uh, and, and out of it grows kinds of fortunes that had never been seen in this country before. You know, uh, Carnegie, and, and eventually comes uh, eaten by the Morgans, uh, combines, and, and so it, 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 it's essentially symbolic, but also you know just kind of technically and, and economically to, to the new nation. And the scale of these places is amazing. You know, they're just gigantic. With regard to the rise of steel and machinery, yeah. you know, w one thing that uh, was eye-opening for me was, you know, we all heard about the Crystal Palace and, yeah. and the beginning of World's Fairs, but I hadn't realized what, in many ways, was the main purpose of the World's Fairs, yeah. to introduce people to machinery and manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. It's a sort of set piece in the book, but, it, you know, you, you can't resist it. You know, in, in, in 1876, when the United States celebrates the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, you know, there's this big kind of World's Fair type thing in Philadelphia that's in what's now Fairmont Park, uh, the Centennial Exhibition. And what's the centerpiece of it? It's this building of machinery, you know, with this gigantic uh, uh, steam engine, which then runs, you know, shafts and, and belts and pulleys that run this gigantic room full of, of uh, machinery. And, 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 you know, they open the fair when the President Grant, you know, turns a, and the Emperor of Brazil, who just seemed to happen to be around at the moment, so the two of them both turn these 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 uh, steam valves, and you know, and and this room full of machinery springs to life. Well, it's a very odd way to celebrate the, the Declaration of Independence. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Declaration of Independence, except that you know the, the the kind of notion of national greatness, where's national greatness come from, has been utterly transformed, you know, over, over these hundred years. Here we are in New York, uh, not far from the Morgan Library, who was the investment banker for Andrew Carnegie and other, you know, we have the Carnegie Hall, and then we have the wonderful Frick yeah. Museum. Yeah. And, and so this brings us to, uh, you know, these were the leaders of the steel industry, and there was a famous uh, strike lockout in 1892 in Homestead, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. And there was a strike, and, and Frick, with Carnegie making himself deliberately scarce, I believe, so as not to take responsibility, Carnegie went to Europe. So they brought in Pinkertons to break the strike, and the strikers you know, uh, started shooting the Pinkertons on ferries coming down the Monongahela River. Uh, and the governor brought in the National Guard. Um, 
the union very badly lost the strike, and, and then you write about how you know, the union was in a sense broken and conditions got very bad with workers working yeah. 12 hours a day, 13 days in a row, then they'd get half a day off and, you know, and, and they'd switch shifts to the, you know, to the night shift for, for two weeks. You know, can you talk about the importance of Homestead and how it made things so much worse? Sure. You know, uh, you know what's interesting about it is that it, Homestead is an offensive by Carnegie because workers had, in his view, accumulated too much power. You know, this was a very well unionized uh, uh, factory, which was the technically most sophisticated and I think the largest or the second largest uh, steel mill in the United States. And workers had created a kind of sliding scale so that they got paid by the ton but keyed into the price of the products that the factory was making. So every gain in efficiency, you know, or every improvement in the price of steel products, workers got a big chunk of that, you know, and they controlled production processes. The mayor of Homestead was a, was a unionist. Uh, and, and Carnegie wanted the ability to control his own mill, you know, and to, to, to be the low-cost producer. You know, that, the Carnegie model is he's the low, and he's going to survive the inevitable recession by being the lowest cost. So, so he sets out to break the union, and he succeeds. And it comes at the end of an era of an extraordinary uh, rising of American labor, you know, with the Knights of Labor and, and, and many skilled worker unions. And in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, uh, uh, American labor was a really important force in shaping the country, but Homestead is one of a number of moments when the tide really turns and, 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 and uh, these, these new industrialists with greater political and economic power than ever before you know, uh, really uh, free themselves of these shackles. And, and this, you know, uh, steel is the most important industry in America when Morgan integrates it with other companies. You know, the Carnegie it becomes the largest corporation in the world. And it grows on a non-union basis. And it kind of seals the fate for, I would say, half a century, really, till the New Deal, uh, that the most advanced, the biggest manufacturing in the United States was going to be non-union. So not long after, Henry Ford really uh, got going in Detroit. Yeah. And you explained very well, uh, I think I didn't fully understand, how huge a difference Henry Ford made yeah. you know, in developing manufacturing as we know it today. Yeah. Can you tell us you know, yeah. what his importance yeah. was? Yeah, I always get a little worried like when I wrote the book and even when I talk about it, I get, I get, I, I, I get very interested in the details here. So I'll try to keep it. No, I mean, we all know a little about Henry Ford, but yeah, what's great yeah. is you really lay out yeah. this is what well, Why you know, so Ford, I think we associate him with the assembly line, and that's correct. But the assembly line is the culmination of a whole series of developments. The extreme standardization of the product and the extreme standardization of the part that goes into it, which is made with highly specialized machinery. So the model is a very long production run of a single product where you can invest to, to lower the cost of everything. And then comes the assembly line, where instead of having, you know, it used to be when you assemble a sewing machine or a car, you literally take, it's like a kid playing Lego. You take like one of each piece you need and you put it in a big pile and these skilled assemblers would build up the car or the sewing machine. You know, Ford says, forget it. You know, you have the workers stand still and the parts moving in front of them and each one doing an extremely minute, you know, uh, 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 motion of, of changing something or drilling something or adding a part. And this turns out to be an enormously efficient system. So it enables Ford to take a luxury good, the automobile, and make it into a mass consumption product. And it therefore sort of suggests, people see it this way, 
a whole new way of life, you know, where normal farmers and workers can have things like cars, you know. So it's, it's a labor system, but it's a, a, it's a social system as well. People call it Fordism. That was the phrase uh, in the early 1920s uh, before um, the phrase mass production uh, kind of replaced it for a while. So I wanted to ask you about Fordism. You know, yeah. I, I, I see it mentioned many times uh, in things I read, and some people think, say, you know, Fordism is great, yeah. it brought efficiencies, you know, low-cost goods, it vastly increased productivity, it made America what it is today, Other, and, and, and it brought us the, the $5, five dollar day in 1913. Mm. Other people say Fordism stank, that it, it created the Charlie Chaplin Modern Times Insanity, and, and created, you know, wrote automaton workers. Mm. You know, what's, what's, what are your thoughts? What's your yeah. verdict on yeah. Fordism? Well, it's all of the above, you know. I mean, those things come together. You know, whether they're inseparable or not is an interesting question, but they certainly come together. So, you know, there is no question that Fordism made possible and makes possible to this day our ability to get huge amounts of stuff cheaply. And, it, you know, I, I, I know some people don't like stuff, but, you know, for most of us, it, it, you know, it kind of improves... We think of it as improving our lives, you know, but it comes at the cost of a kind of work which is extraordinarily deadening and extraordinarily difficult. And in fact, it's so uh, uh, unpleasant that Ford introduces high wages, not out of uh, the goodness of his heart, because workers just leave these jobs as soon as they get hired, uh, because uh, the actual content of the job is so debilitating. So, so, so you know, Fordism has both sides of it. And you know, there's some very sophisticated uh, discussions immediately about this. Like, for example, there's a guy named Lincoln Filene, who's from Filene Brothers, who's also uh, a bit in the 20th century fund. He's like a philanthropist. And he writes a long defense of Fordism, I think 1924, almost immediately. And he says, you know, this, this, this holds a promise for a better life for the people of the world beyond anything we ever dreamed of. And he said, you know, this is boring. And it isn't very nice to work in these factories. He said, but you know, it's better than starvation. You know, I mean, boredom is not nice, but starvation is a lot worse. Um, and, and, you know, and that eventually maybe we could have shorter hours and, and, and so forth. And so, you know, people have been grappling with this problem for a very long time. So you write about the famous River Rouge complex yeah. in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, which is the uh, culmination of all things Ford. Yeah. There are yeah. 102,000 workers, uh, the largest manufacturing complex in the world. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people there weren't very happy. I think you wrote that the, the uh, turnover rate was 370%. Yeah. Yeah. There was this wonderful quote. Uh, am I going to find this? Yeah. Um, a worker saying, if I keep putting on nut number 86 for about 86 more da days, I will be nut number 86 in the bug house. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why, you know, what are the efficiencies of building yeah. this humongous, you know, yeah. Complex well, with 102,000 workers. Ford was an obsessive guy, so he tried to do two things. He had extreme centralization of production. Basically, every Ford, or at least the parts for every Ford in, in the Americas were made in this one factory. Uh, and he also vertically integrated to a degree that almost no one else does. So not only did, you know, most car companies, even today, like Telsa's an assembler. They don't make most of the things in their cars, you know. Uh, Ford... So he's gonna make everything, starting with the steel, he builds his own blast furnaces, starting with the glass, he has his own glass factory. Uh, he buys forests in northern Michigan to make uh, 
wooden parts necessary. In fact, the, my, the favorite discovery in this book is, is, is an object in American life which I love, the charcoal briquette. The, you know, the, uh, what's it called, Ford something? Kingford. 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 Kingford was the name of uh, Ford's cousin, who he put in charge of the factory. And, and the, the briquettes turned out to be recycling the scraps like uh, sawdust. You know, they would somehow burn. It's, you don't want to think about it. But anyway, so, there was, so he had extreme uh, vertical integration. Literally, raw materials go into the factory and finished cars go out. And, and a vast uh, market you know, that he's, he's satisfying. And, and he thinks there will be, be great efficiencies. And there were, in a way. But there were also great dangers, because you know, all, you, all your eggs are in, in one basket. Uh, so uh, eventually, you know, American manufacturers will move away from this model. But his is the culmination. And it's an extraordinarily innovative factory in a million ways in, in its architecture, in its technology, in its labor relations, uh, and, and recognized as such. And, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, no factory in America is more important than the history of art. You know, I mean, photographers and filmmakers and painters, they all go to River Rouge. You know, it's kind of magnetic. And you have a wonderful section on Alfred Kahn, the great factory yeah. Uh, yeah. architect, and Diego Rivera painting. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that, that's a, nice, that's a yeah. nice section. So you write about Ford being vehemently, venomously anti-union and the famous or infamous service department headed by a Harry Bennett yeah. that would beat up and sometimes kill union supporters. So how did we go from Ford's huge anti-unionism to this huge union success right. at, at, in Flint, 1936-37, at the GM plants right. there? Well, I think the key here is, is the depression and the New Deal. That's certainly critically important that um, the Depression kind of delegitimizes American business. You know, in the 1920s, you know, a little bit like in our age, you know, the businessman is a cultish figure, seen as brilliant. He should lead society, you know. Um, but the Depression, because businessmen kind of claim, you know, credit for the, for the good stuff. They get the blame for the bad stuff. Uh, and the New Deal uh, brings in a kind of new legitimacy for workers that facilitates unionization. And, and this reaches ahead first at GM, as you mentioned, in Flint. And here's where this model that Ford is the most extreme example boomerangs on companies. Because if you have only, for example, one plant making all, let's say, the engines for every Chevrolet, which was actually the case for Chevrolet, you know, and that happened to be in Flint, if you stop that one plant, you shut down every Chevrolet production facility in the United States. And that's exactly what the union was able to do by picking these kind of choke points. And, 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 and you only need a minority of workers. You only need a few key places. Um, and, and, and the sit-down strike was the way they did it. And, and it had, you know, there were lots of reasons why it was so effective. But one thing is they actually disguised how few workers were actually involved in all this. So you know, all these companies, Ford holds out. You know, Ford has this fort, and he holds out. And it's only in 1941 that he finally cracks when the union uh, goes on strike again, but also now the government is really coming down because World War One Two is around the corner, and 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 you know the government's got to get everything sort of set up for the war production, which they know is so they they will you know so it's, the union's much stronger. It's one at GM, it's one at Chrysler, and, and the federal government's kind of putting all this pressure. So uh, he holds out for a while, and then he just suddenly reverses. And he's an odd guy. And when he reverses, he gives them the best contract you know, in, in the industry. And he gives them the union shop. And he gives them things that no one else has. So, so you have a very nice chapter about Foxconn yeah. and the movement of man, a lot of manufacturing yeah. from the West to China and Vietnam. And it seems that Foxconn 
you know, uh, has several River Rouges, and, and they always copy some of the best and some of the worst of Ford. Yeah. Uh, can you discuss that? Well, Foxconn's why I wrote this book. You know, when people start jumping off the roof of Foxconn factories in 2010, you know, buried in these stories were things that, you know, the, the plant where the worst rash of suicides took place had, you know, various estimates, but about 300,000 workers. And, you know, I was just completely mind-blown. First of all, I'd never heard of this place, you know, to be honest. And second of all, the idea that there was a factory with 300,000 workers just blew my mind. Because, you know, American factories have been shrinking since World War II. You know, six, 7,000 is a huge factory in the United States. 300, how could this be? So uh, it, it sort of got me interested in them. And you, you're right, they're, they're not integrated in the way Henry Ford was, though. They're not... Uh, they're mostly assembly factories, actually, although they do make some parts, but they do it on a scale without any precedent. Um, the model is so similar to Lowell, at least it started out that way, in that they depended on migrant workers, and initially mostly young women from poorer parts of central China, who, just as in Lowell, came to these factories as a kind of work interlude before going back home. Um, and. Uh, uh, they're very, very cheap labor. But there are a lot of differences between these factories and all the ones I talk up to there. Um, these are companies that are not making products for themselves. They're making them under contract for other companies. They're not sources of national pride the way a lot of these other places were because they're mostly foreign-owned. Foxconn's Taiwanese-owned. Um, they mostly are making stuff for the export market. And unlike these other factories, I mean, I mean, Henry Ford loved to have people visit his factories, you know, including his rivals. You know, uh, uh, Citroen goes there, and Angeli from Fiat goes there. Uh, these places are hidden. You know, they're, 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 um, they're not held forth as models of a new utopia. So they're both very different and very similar, you know, at the same time. They're the kind of culmination in an odd way. So you're just talking about Flint and the... Yeah. Uh, sit-down strike yeah. and how in ways General Motors was dumb to make yeah. all the Chevy engines in one place because that made it very vulnerable if that one place was shut down. So we have big famous Apple right. where virtually all the iPads and iPods in the world are made at one or two Foxconn factories. Right. And one might think that's right. monumentally stupid right. for any number of reasons, right. but clear Apple's not a dumb company. Right. So why right. this type of man? Why, why focus so, it just? So I thought about this a lot. You know, why after World War II do American factories shrink, but some of them stay very large? And I think the answer, in my view, and it sounds very counterintuitive, is that America had more intense class conflict than almost any place in the world. And it's the ability of labor to shut down these uh, central integrated plants that led American manufacturers by the late 40s to say, we're going to disperse, we're going to have smaller multiple plants. Places you don't have to worry about that kept the big model. So West Germany, for example, because of co-determination and social democratic policies, um, you know, the workers are half the board on Volkswagen. And the Volkswagen now, the main plant, has 70,000 workers. You know, uh, River Rouge now has 5,000 workers. You know. China, well, you got an autocracy. You know, I mean, Apple got the... Communist Party and the Red Army, you know, I mean, I mean, to put it as crudely as possible, you know, things get really nasty, you know, um, you've got some heavy artillery out there to maintain order. So I think you see the rise of these super gigantic factories and, and the super concentration of production in places where there's not a fear of labor disruption. Um, I should say it's not as if there's not labor militancy in China. There's a huge strike wave that's been going on for the last five, six, seven years in China that most people don't realize even exists. 
but it's all local short strikes. Um, the government tolerates them as long as they last two or three or four days and then totally non-political. But if they start getting out of hand, they are immediately shut down. So uh, Apple knows all this. Following up Don's point about labor market polarization. Okay. So there's all this talk now that manufacturing is going to evaporate, disappear, yeah. uh, slide over the cliff, yeah. and it's all going to be replaced by AI and robots, so we won't need manufacturing yeah. workers anymore, which, of course, is exaggerated. But what do you make of all that? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. Foxconn itself, when people start jumping off the roofs and they got all this criticism, they said, oh, we're just going to have robots. And they have robotized a few factories. But at the same time, they build a new factory. So like their newest uh, iPhone factory has 350,000 workers. That's where the iPhone 10, uh, the newest one, is being made. So um, it's really hard to predict where things will be going. Uh, clearly, there are multiple models in high-wage areas where there's some reason to stay there. You know, automation uh, is usually the key to be able to continue to operate in those kinds of places. But there's lots of low-wage parts of the world left, and, and sometimes it doesn't Hey, you know, and, and, and I mean, the extreme example of this is Bangladesh, where it's almost as if you're seeing history going backward. You know, I mean, Bangladesh factories compared to Foxconn look like the low east side in 1900. You know, I mean, Foxconn, these are big, new, modern, air conditioned, well lit. You know, Bangladesh, they're in buildings that fall down on people's heads. You know, it, it, it's the triangle fire 10 times worse. So, and, and you know, and, and this is not some marginal player. This is Walmart and H and M and everyone under the sun, subcontracting and subcontracting and subcontracting. So, you know, there's no principle here. It's just how do you make money? You know, what works for your company at what moment? And I think it's very hard to predict. Clearly, robotization will continue, but I don't think in the short term we're going to see globally anyway. You know, the disappearance of, of factory labor is a major part of our world economy. Last question before we take questions from the audience. So uh, put on your philosopher king hat for a second. Uh, what would you do to fix yeah. manufacturing, make it better? What might have been done 50 years ago, 100 years ago to make it better? And, and, and uh, yeah. what would you do going into the future? Yeah, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I think in the United States uh, 80 years ago, what should have been done was done, which is the unionization, you know, which gave workers both some say as to what happened on the shop floor, but probably even more, a, a, a more equitable slice of the enormous efficiency and productivity of, of these, these factories. And you know, this is what people are nostalgic for. When they say, make America great again, it's that combination that they're thinking of, you know, the ability to send your kid to college, to own a home, to own a car, and so forth. So you know, that's you know, one side of it. But the other side of it is, even after that happened, these jobs were really rough. People didn't like the actual jobs, you know. Uh, they were physically taxing. They still were autocratic. Um, so I think there's a deeper question. You can unionize, and you can unionize in China, and, uh, and you can unionize any place, and that would be a great step forward. Um, is there some fundamental transformation of the technology and the organization of production that could efficiently put out goods, you know, keep our luxurious lifestyle without the kind of toll, mental, and, and, and there has not been that much experimentation with that, either in the communist world or in the, or in the capitalist world. It, it's, it's really uh, something that's only very occasionally been toyed with. So, you know, that to me is an open question. Can, can you have the best of both worlds? And the answer is I don't know. Thank you. Okay, questions from the audience? 
David? How did you find, how do you know that the iPhone 10 is made in a certain place? I mean, uh, oh, um, the Chinese closed down and all that it was made? Uh, do you want to ask it again in the microphone? Oh, I'm sorry. How, how did you get your information about what's going on in China? Well, uh, Steve's former employee of the New York Times actually does occasionally cover this and cover it pretty well. Um, and sometimes the business press covers it, particularly the Asian business press covers it. Um, the other thing is, you know, there's a, a, a group of uh, extraordinarily talented uh, ethnically Chinese academics, most of whom were based either in Taiwan or Hong Kong, but some based in the United States or England, who've done a lot of work on this. And, and some of them have gotten jobs in these factories. And, and, and so there there's, is a fair amount of information, even though it's, it's actually very difficult for foreign researchers to, to get in this. So, um, and, and every once in a while, even Apple itself talks about it. You know, um, Tim Cook, who's the current head of Apple, was the guy who sort of developed this system. He, you know, Apple used to make computers for a while. You know, um, and it was Tim Cook who said, forget it. We don't want to make things. You know? And he built this system. And he has occasionally talked about it over the years. Yes. Wait for the microphone. Well, thank you for this very interesting conversation. Um, you said that you know, your sort of theory on why factories in other parts of the world became mm. larger is because the class conflict here was more acute. How do you apply that theory to the rise of the technology giants? I mean, you know, the technology companies are massive in the U.S., right? Um, and a lot of, I mean, now we talk about um, the repatriation of cash, but it's not really yeah. cash. It's held by a few companies. It's all corporate bonds. So how do you apply some of these, you know, yeah. your research to yeah. the financialization and the... Well, that's a very know. clever question you, you've asked. Um, it's a great question. Of course, I haven't studied that as much, you know. But I would say a couple things about it. I, I think you know, the earliest example of the massive workforce you know, that, 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 that you know, would be Walmart. And you know, Walmart develops in a part of the country in which effectively the New Deal never happened. You know, when you're talking about you know, the, the rural Missouri and rural Arkansas, you know, the, the labor conditions, the legal circumstances almost were a kind of throwback to the 1920s. So it's almost as if they sort of picked up from the, the pre-unionization period. And by the time you get to places like Amazon more recently, you know, with these warehouses, which are you know, abysmal working conditions, you know, the American labor movement is so much weaker than it was, let's say, in, in 1950, when you know, General Electric begins building factories all over the country to decentralize. You know, that I, I don't think that this is in the forefront of the thinkers, thinking of, of, of business executives today. You know, they, it's just not something they particularly worry about. You know, where it was acutely at the forefront of the minds of people thinking, where do I build my next plant? You know, I would say through the 1970s. You know, but since the sort of whole sea change in the American political economy, uh, starting in the 1980s, um, the circumstances are different. So we've kind of looped back I, almost to a, a, an earlier context for these decisions. I'm just going to interject. I saw the statistic today that when Apple introduced the iPhone, I think Nokia was valued at like $110 billion market capitalization, and Apple was worth maybe about 100. Now Apple's worth 800, 900 billion, and Nokia's worth something like 47 billion. So a lot of it is, 
you know, I don't want to sound like an advertisement for Apple, the value of your ideas, the value of your marketing, if you come up with a really smart market-leading idea and know how to produce overseas cheaply with Foxconn, you know, great things happen for shareholders. Thanks very much. Uh, this, this, make, this question may be too broad, but it's one of definition. Uh, you call it a factory and you take it back to 1731, but a lot of what you're talking about tonight in many ways can be generalized to any collective human effort. And if you go back to any great building projects, cathedrals, pyramids, uh, trade guilds, uh, shipbuilding before, uh, before the 18th century, uh, even fruit pickers in, uh, in the Depression, uh, a lot of the same themes come out. So how did you, how did you arrive at the, the sort of the, the unit of analysis you've used? Well, a little bit arbitrarily. I mean, your point is very well taken. There clearly were large assemblages of working people, you know, to build the pyramids, to build aqueducts, to often associate with war, you know. So, uh, you know, your point is very well taken. But, and shipbuilding is a good example because it, that, 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 that they're kind of making things with lots of people. But most manufacturing, you know, is the way of the kinds of things we now associate with fa factories, clothes or building materials uh, or metallic goods, were done by very small numbers of people, you know, through until the 18th century in England. So I was just sort of thinking of that group, and this is a kind of uh, a quantum leap, you know, in that kind of activity. Uh, not unprecedented, you know, but, but, but different. And I think some of those earlier examples were important. You know, civil engineering, you know, to a large extent comes out of the military and a lot of the practices that um, made possible, for example, Ford, like interchangeable parts, comes out of the military, comes out of armories. It's, it's actually first perfected to make guns because the military wants to be able to repair them on, on the battlefield. So, you know, they're definitely interconnections, you know, and, and even in the language of labor, you see that, you know, the language of the picket, the strike, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, the common notion, you know, of, of the, particularly the consumer good, you know, uh, and how that's made, I guess that's what I was kind of focusing on uh, when I was launching on this project, you know. I guess I started backwards. I was thinking about Foxconn, and I thought, well, what are the historical precedents? If Foxconn is the biggest, the most advanced, you know, the template for the future of today, you know, what were the previous versions of it? And that's essentially what the book is. It's a sort of case study of what was, you know, what was the Foxconn of the 1820s and so forth. I'm, I'm going to amplify again. So the book, book's very nice. It opens up with, like, the history of the very first factory building in the world where they're spinning silk thread. And yes, you're right. You know, shipbuilding you know, was going on with the Greeks and Romans, and you could argue whether a shipbuilding facility was a factory. But you know, it's, you know, his book starts out with, here's a factory. This is the first factory in the world. And, and first, I'm thinking, I'm just re going to read a book about this factory and that factory. But it really becomes a history of factories. And as Josh said, it's you know, especially about things that consumers want, which is somewhat different from shipbuilding and, and making cannons, because that's really much more for government or the very, very wealthy. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I, um, I was really intrigued by your comparison between the US and Western Germany. So I am from Germany, so uh, I know the system of uh, court determination there and that unions play just a different role in a German political economy than here in the US. And in general, I would very much agree with your assessment that it's uh, related to the 
a specific way the class conflict played out in the U.S., but you know, if you think about the history of the union movement in Germany in comparison to the U.S., it's, something seems to have reversed at some point in time because uh, the union movement in Germany was certainly um, also uh, the, uh, the victim of uh, repression by authoritarian governments of different stripes from Bismarck to Third Reich and so on. Um, so it was very contentious class conflict up until the 1950s, but then it entered this co-determination phase. And in the U.S. it's somehow, it seems to me, uh, simplifying greatly a little bit the reverse because the U.S. started out as um, the city upon a hill, democracy, uh, freedom of association, and at some point um, uh, it seems that it's, it shifted into a different equilibrium because now when I come from Germany and, and look at the debates about labor relations in the United States, I'm uh, actually pretty shocked about uh, how, also legal obstacles that unions sometimes face here to, to organize. And I think uh, somehow the, the thing got reversed and I would, I would be interested in hearing your opinion about union uh, organization and what, you, what, what, what happened yeah. there. Well, I'm not an expert on Germany, so you know my, my, my comments would be pretty tentative. But I think, um, and you know, German industry has a somewhat different model, where you know the mid-sized firm was much more important in Germany. I think after World War II, when they finally, really, finally adopt the mass production model, you know, it's, it, to some extent, it's under, it's still during the occupation, and the Americans sort of help set it up. It's kind of ironic, and they insist on certain things that that do, I think, lead to a a kind of social democratic model that extends into the firm itself and kind of into the factory itself and, and therefore makes managers more confident. You know, I, I ran across this great thing like the BASF, the chemical company, you know, where they, their main production facility has something like 30,000 people. You know, no chemical company in the United States has 30,000. And they actually said, you know, well, we understand there could be a strike, there could be a, a, a flood, you know, but, but they, they sort of a lot of advantage and they just didn't worry as much. I think in the United States, you know, a lot of research by historians in the last 20 years have sort of reversed, I think, the way we used to think about the New Deal, which was that it was, you know, utterly triumphant. And, you know, I think what a lot of the newer literature has argued that is that, you know, the business class was never really reconciled to the New Deal. You know, they were practical and pragmatic, and they understood, you know, what they could and couldn't do, you know. And they worked quite patiently, you know, ideologically, but in other ways, like, like, like moving people out of these fortresses of worker strength, you know, the Detroits or places like Schenectady where GE was, you know, um, or Cleveland, uh, to, to, to weaken, you know, uh, this. And then when finally the ideological moment comes, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, they're quick to seize it. And it's not like the auto industry deunionized itself, but it's part suppliers all do, you know, and a lot of in ancillary ones. So, I think there is a, a business culture in the United States which is deeply hostile to, you know, on both practical and, and, and ideological, even spiritual grounds, to anything that interferes with the freedom of management, you know, the right to manage. And I think that may be stronger here than in uh, Europe, and exactly why, I'm not sure. Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask a question that touches, let me see if I can put it concisely, on value creation and that, like, what value is created intrinsically in the factory as a unit and then 
what value is created by, let's say, taxpayer-funded research, um, and then infrastructure without it, like Ford, for example, wouldn't be able to have his cars uh, used, like right. with suburbia. So I, I want you, is, is there any way to track the historical shift in value creation from the economic unit called the factory, yeah. and then what are, uh, and what are the interdependencies of that yeah. with infrastructure and government-funded yeah. IP, and also with, with yeah. uh, information technology, I would be interested if it's possible to make a parallel yeah. between the hardcore industrial and the information age factory, yeah. like Apple. Or yeah, there's a lot there. I'm not sure. I, I know I can't do, it, do all of it. I packed but, it pretty, yeah, pretty let, let, concisely. Though. Yeah, <laughs> let, me, let me just uh, get a couple angles and just, just briefly. You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of debate at the time, and there's a lot of debate now about, like, well, why are factories exactly efficient? Why was this model adopted? It seems self-evident. But, you know, actually, the more you look at it, the more complicated it gets. And, and, and you know, so there's a lot of discussion about it. And some people argue, you know, the original arguments were sort of now are mostly rejected. They were sort of technologically determined. Someone invents a machine, and that needs a factory to house it, and you get the factory. You know, but most people don't think that anymore. But, you know, the, there are lots of things about, about the internalization of transactions, so the expenses are greatly reduced, both uh, the financial and, and transportation expenses by integrating things in one space. Labor control is much greater. Uh, there's also much less theft. So the, there are all kinds of theories that were put forth in the, in the 1800s and put forth now about uh, why it might be more efficient. But I think that the thrust of your question is it raises a really good point that it's never a self-sufficient entity. You know, the factory can't exist without uh, a structure. In the beginning, the factory owners themselves had to build it. You know, this, the simplest things, how do you get the cotton to these obscure places with waterfalls? I mean, in England, they had to put them on, like, pack horses and carry them over the moors, you know, I mean, until the factory owners built the road that a couple years ago I drove on to go visit the remains of these factories. You know, they built it themselves. Uh, there's a good book by a former colleague of Steve's, Louis Uchitel, that just came out in the fall about manufacturing in the United States. And he says, look, it's always subsidized. It's subsidized by the state. It's subsidized by other enterprises. You know? I mean, he's making an argument that there should be social input in decisions because these things are not you know, these self-contained, privately owned things. They can't exist that way. I think that's true. To do the kind of quantification, well, which piece comes from the self-contained bit and which comes from that's beyond my capacity, although I suspect some economists have tried to do it. How, uh, how important do you think it is that uh, we have manufacturing in this country as opposed to, um, you know, right. and doing, contracting it out overseas? Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm, it's one of the few things I share with my president. I think it's a, it's a good idea to have manufacturing in this country. You know, about 8% of the workforce now works in manufacturing down from, you know, 24%, not that many decades ago. And, you know, there are multiple reasons why I think it's important. You know, I mean, uh, some of it is, you know, these are good jobs. Now, what makes them good are probably things you could also apply to other kinds of jobs, you know, but right now, you know, manufacturing jobs tend to be better paid and have better benefits. But I think you could also argue, as many people have, that they have a greater multiplier effect 
than many other kinds of jobs, and they create ancillary jobs of all kinds, um, which I think is important as well. Um, uh, uh, and I would, you know, and, and by the way, of course, people make nationalist and national security arguments as well, which I'm not sure what I think about, but some people argue that, you know, if you have a hollowed out economy, ultimately your military and political power have to be reduced, and, and, and that's certainly traditional thinking. Um, uh, so I think those are all reasons why we, we, we might want to have manufacturing here. Um, and even some companies like uh, GE, who disaggregated, you know, had the design and the marketing here and movement, you know, are, are increasingly now arguing that, that design benefits from proximity to the production process. And that, you know, one of the reasons why American products got sort of crummy was because they were designed by people who had no idea how they were made, they got no feedback from people who actually made them. So I, th I think there are a lot of arguments that have been put forth, even kind of almost like, I don't know how to put it, like articles about kind of spiritual well-being almost of a nation, you know, that, that, that there's something sort of creepy about uh, utterly depending upon the exploitation of other people far away so you don't see it. I mean, we're exporting the questions. You know, we're exporting the questions that we need to confront. What's the price we're willing to pay for the way of life we live? You know, and if you don't have to see that price being paid, you know, you don't even think about the question. And I think that's been a disaster for the United States. We're on an utterly unself-sustainable, uh, ecologically, financially path. You know, um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crash and burn. And some of it is because we're oblivious to what's actually involved in sustaining our way of life. You know, just it's, it's, something happens there. You know, we don't know anything about it. And people work very hard, of course, to keep that images. I was so amazed. It's really hard to find images of inside of Foxconn factories. You know, there's a zillion images of River Rouge, but not many inside of Foxconn factory. Just very, another quick interjection. So the Steelworkers Union often says, if we let China's humongous steel industry with huge overcapacity put basically all American steel mills out of business, and they're sort of heading that way, and at some point in time, China says, we're going to stop exporting steel to you in the United States, that could leave, you know, hypothetically, you know, leave our military and industry in a very vulnerable position. Yes, maybe we can get steel from Brazil or Romania, but it could create real vul vulnerabilities. Uh, one last question. Um, so I want to raise two things and see how you want to put them together. Uh, one of the things that I think is the most neat about the book is when you take Fordism and then you transfer it to uh, Soviet Russia and Soviet Poland, and they're really interested in Fordism as production, but it's a different social model and, and a different social ideology over there. And then maybe connect that to, uh, Stephen asked you about uh, what you'd fix and you didn't say anything about workplace control. And, and just along the lines of Germany, I wonder if, if workplace control in the boardroom is good enough, or do you need workplace control on the shop floor? Yeah. Well, I think the chapter that, that we didn't talk about, so I'm glad you brought it up, that I had the most fun writing about was the chapter about the Soviet Union, because it was a story I didn't know very well. And I think very few Americans know it. And, and you know, in, in the great crash industrialization of the late 20s and the early 30s under Stalin's first five-year plan, American companies were very, very heavily involved in designing factories and staffing them and, and getting the whole industrial system set up. So you transported basically an American-style factory system into a totally different social system. And, and, and 
what was remarkable to me was how um, robust that system was, how, like, how, how impervious that system was to, to change, you know. Um, although it, it was changed somewhat. So the question you raised, your second question, was greatly debated at the time in the Soviet Union. You know, and one position, and it was the winning position, was you know, what matters is who gets the product. And if it goes to the state, which is all the people, you know, that's, that's what makes us different than capitalism. You know? Then there's a sort of other group that says, no, these are inherently oppressive systems. You know, socialism shouldn't be this. You know, we should have a different organization of work in terms of the actual technology and the issue you raise. Who controls it? What should be the role of workers on the shop floor? And that position was mostly defeated. I mean, although there were unions in the Soviet Union, workers probably, in Stalinist Russia, it was less dangerous for a worker to criticize the manager than it was in the River Rouge, right? You know, and in fact, when people get uh, executed in the Soviet Union, in the purges, it's the managers, not the workers, actually getting executed. Utterly unjustly, but for various reasons, it's the managers, it's not the workers. So you know, they do act, you know, make some gestures in that direction but not fundamentally. They retain the notion of a kind of hierarchical organization of work and say, well, we'll, well, but we're going to put this marvelous machine, social machine, to work for benefiting the whole society. You know? and, 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 and the only place where you got a little bit of experimentation in doing it differently is in Maoist China. And those experiments, which were really fascinating, were also kind of disasters uh, for, for lots of reasons. So, um, I don't know if we'll ever see a moment again where people raise these questions, you know, in such a profound way. But that was one of the really fascinating parts about looking at the factory system under communist regimes, because at least episodically those questions did get raised and got debated in very sophisticated ways. Mark, did you have a question? Excuse me? Uh, Mark, Mark, no, behind, no, Mark you. behind you. Um, no, I was just thinking... It, you know, if you're the story you tell, which is kind of from uh, Foxconn looking backwards, yeah. and the striking thing is, so manufacturing, um, in, in one in this story, manufacturing doesn't change that much. It changes location, and it changes location, kind of essentially on disempowered workers. Right. And so the the, right. the connection between manufacturing and authoritarianism actually becomes greater. Um, you know, the factory is not a um, democracy, right. you know, and, and, the, the, and so in the modern world, uh, manufacturing is more and more an authoritarian um, practice. I mean, from, from a, a kind of global perspective. But so, you know, the interest, and, and this is where the kind of Germany example is interesting and, and possibly says more about the future. Because, you know, if we were ever um, successful in kind of raising um, um, the standards from, you know, the bottom up, that is setting some kind of global standard, global floor, not just on wages, but on rights and so on, then, um, you know, the implications for manufacturing, like the reason manufacturing doesn't change is it doesn't have to. Right. We essentially have a kind of global, low road manufacturing you know, system. It doesn't mean that technological change doesn't occur. It does. But it occurs much less than it would, you know, if it were pressured by rising wages, you know, and, which you kind of see in Germany. Powerful unions, 28-hour work week, 
something like that, you know, in the recent, you know, contract. Um, and so the history of manufacturing is not necessarily the future of manufacturing. Yeah. If, you know, we were ever successful in raising the, yeah. um, you know, standards globally. No, no, very well put. I mean, you know, in my conclusion, one of the things I, I sort of argue is that, you know, this model has been here with us for 300 years, but it's not sustainable for a long time in any one place. And that almost none of the places I write about still exist, you know, or at least on the scale they once existed. And I actually argue there's a kind of natural history to these places, that they depend on, you know, to use an old-fashioned phrase, you know, primitive accumulation. They take people who are basically outside the workforce, whether it's Lowell girls or Chinese, you know, peasant children or, or, or orphans, and they could kind of exploit them uh, and combine that with new technology. But then, you know, lots of things begin to happen. You know, people, reformers and unions come along, wages go up. You have huge fixed costs in, in what was once innovative technology and someone else is, you know, developing a new thing. And, you know, 100 years later, the factory's gone. What's sustainable is the ability to redo this over and over again in a different place. You know, that's what's sustainable, not the ability. So, you know, maybe Germany is the exception that proves the rule. We'll see, you know, in 50 years. But, uh, you know, so far... You run it's out of places to run to at some point. Exactly. But, you know, I've been spending my entire life, you know, thinking like we're going to run out of new things to exploit, and I keep, you know, <laughs> being wrong, so... <laughs> I don't know. On that optimi optimistic <laughs> note, uh, thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Congratulations.